we'll often scare people off with sincerity. Like, hey, look, these are the three pillars of our culture. We give more than we take. We speak from the heart and we go off the beaten path. And this is how these come to life for us. And we have story after story after story that brings those, you know, those values and those pillars of our culture code to life. And we make it very clear to them. If you can't stay within these well-defined boundaries, you're going to be miserable here. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Bobby Herrera. And today we're really learning about purpose and how aligning yourself and your company around your purpose can have a profound impact on you, the people around you, and the people that your organization touches. So we go back to Bobby's origin story, which he talks about at length in his book, The Gift of Struggle. I found Bobby because he was mentioned in passing by Pat Lencioni on Table Group Podcast. And it's a fantastic story. Bobby now runs the Populous Group. And what's amazing is he didn't share his foundational story, his pivotal story, the thing that gives him his purpose until the organization had been 10 years old. And it had taken them 10 years to get to a $100 million turnover. And in the next 10 years, they've added another 500 million. So the power of purpose is there. You know, we talk about the sort of three pillars that he's got to build a business and it's selection, not hiring. And it's, you know, it just has a really nice way of talking about it. And some of the symbols that they have, the employees are called climbers. Everybody gets a carabiner. People are clipping together. There's a sense of camaraderie. And also because of his origins as the, one of 13 children of Mexican farm laborer immigrants. He's after the backing the underdog and helping people from non-traditional educational backgrounds. You know, they've got 8,000 contractors, eight to 10,000 contractors in any week that they're looking after in their clients' organizations. And they go out of their way to back the underdog and solve problems for people. It's just... Fantastic story, great organization. I really enjoyed chatting to Bobby. He's passionate about helping people understand their struggle and overcome their struggle. And I think the thread of purpose all the way through it is just authentic and impactful. So I had a fantastic conversation with with Bobby. I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to us. Dom, I held the underdogs, brother. Yeah, I'm a student of struggle. You know, I'm a man that's always doing my best to answer the question, who am I becoming? And great for me is that I'm able to evolve towards generosity, humility, wisdom, and the things that matter and being someone that I want my children to become. You know, that's, that's who I am at my core. And I've been blessed to build a community in my, you know, lesser significant part of my story, the resume that's, you know, doing something better, you know, bigger than themselves. And, you know, I think I've reached a point in my story where helping others find better ways to make their story more significant and impactful brings me a lot of joy. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that brought us together here today. So I appreciate you reaching out. Look forward to sharing some of the many mistakes that I'm sure you and I have made along our own journeys. Bobby, it's great to have you here. Where did you start? Like what... What was your background, right? So now you are author, 
successful entrepreneur, father, where have you come from? You know, I think the proverbial bottom would be the simple answer. <laughs> uh, when I reflect on my story, uh, Dom, I tend to go to what preceded the beginning of mine. And, you know, my parents were immigrants from Mexico. I'm number 11 of 13. I have seven brothers and five sisters. I still eat with my elbows on the table. I will steal your bacon in you know, a <laughs> fraction of a second. So uh, I'll apologize in advance for the first meal we have together. Uh, there's no shame in my game going back for seconds or thirds. No, uh, when I look at the beginning of my story, I celebrate the modesty of it. And I've gotten to a point in my life where you know, I see many more blessings and burdens. Economically, we couldn't have been more challenged, but in the areas where it matters, we had a surplus, you know, looking out for one another, caring for one another, loving for loving one another, um, telling one another the kind truth. Uh, we learned that early and contributing. Yeah, you have to when you're in a family of that size and every penny counts. And I look at those, you know, beginning attributes that form who we are and celebrate them now where growing up, I looked at it differently. My narrative was different, but uh, I had a kind moment that changed my life very early in my story that transformed how I viewed my story. And that's somewhat became the invisible, become the invisible force that drives me in everything that I do. And I'm just building on that. Where were you in the 13? Number 11. Oh, you said that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So What's interesting about that is uh, I actually just had this conversation with somebody in that pursuing an entrepreneurial journey requires a lot of creativity. And, you know, aside from the resilience and aside from the metaphor of you fall down eight, you know, seven times, get up eight. I thought that my mission in life, Dom, was to try to figure out something that my parents hadn't seen yet. And you know how difficult that is to do as child number 11 when you had 10 older siblings who were just as mischievous as you were. So I think that's where I learned my entrepreneurial creativity. Where are the, your other siblings now? Most of my sisters are in New Mexico, close to my mother. And my brothers, we tended to be more pioneeristic and we scattered throughout the United States. I still have a couple of siblings that live in Mexico. So that was just a part of who they were. So we're, we're pretty scattered. Fortunately, we're still pretty close. And are they all on, are they entrepreneurial as well? No. One of my sisters pursued it, and she was actually one of my initial inspirations watching her do that when all I knew was the life of, you know, my, being a migrant farm working family and working in a small town, watching my dad do blue collar type jobs. And then I saw my sister start a hair salon salon, and then I saw her start a women's clothing store and it's like a light bulb went off in my head like wow maybe there are other possibilities for me and you know shared this with her many times she was a big inspiration for me in the beginning yeah my grandmother set up a, ended up with a chain of hairdressers and my mother ended up setting up hairdressers and that's I think that's where the entrepreneurial gene has come down to me you know going and seeing grandmother and mother you know, working and spending time as a small child in, in those hair salons. Well, it's interesting. There's a metaphor in there that I think uh, uh, is worth unpacking is the people that we lead, the people that are, we're doing our best to model for us. Like they're going to hear what we do before they hear what we say. And you and I just shared two very real examples of that. Like we heard what they did before we ever heard what they said. And we use that to, uh, figure out, oh, well, how can that make my own story better? Yeah. It's funny because the last time we were chatting, I chuckled because you said, oh, well, I grew up on a farm, right? And in isolation, a comment like that, right? You could, you conjure up somebody growing up on a ranch or, do you know what I mean, right? Whereas that's not, <laughs> that wasn't what growing up on a farm was for you. No. But it's just, it's just that turn of phrase you use, like couldn't have been yeah. further from the reality. And it did make, it did make me chuckle. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> in one way, it sounds privileged and that wasn't what you meant at all. I don't know whether you do that subconsciously 
or whether it's just it's like it's really straight and there is there's no inner there's no inner humor in it for you it's just it's a it's just a fact yeah i think it's more of a fact and more of a reality for me there's definitely no uh I'm not that strategic. Um, so <laughs> I think it was just me, you know, trying to keep things simple. What did you do then? High school, college, what's your, what's your early career? After high school, the first thing I did was I raised my hand and I joined the military and I was in the military before college, proudly served uh, my country. And it was um, something that I believe helped form a lot of the lessons that I took forward and then after that college and had a few professional chapters before I eventually started what I now call my community populist group in 2002. And this year will be 20 and on September 9th. And I often tell people that, uh, we are just a big overgrown student in high school because the first few years I call the first five years of starting my community dumb, uh, the most fun I never want to have again. We flunked at least three times. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if that's a thing in England, but when you have to do a grade over, we call it, you know, you flunk. And I did that at least three times. I, there's not enough time for us to go through all the mistakes I've made. But yeah, I feel the best part of our stories just beginning. You know, often I'm chatting to people and they say, oh, I'm going to sell my business and, and start again. Mm -hmm. And I say, do you not remember what it was like when you started? Like, you know, you'd be licking your own stamps and doing your own invoicing and, and, and all the other shit that you no longer, you haven't done for such a long time. You can't remember yeah. how awful it was, you know, struggling. It's like, like, why would I put my kids up for adoption when they're 21? Like, <laughs> it's like, I've already been through all the junk with them. Like, I'm going to enjoy it. And like, let's build something that's going to outlast me. And that's what great looks like for me. And so what's the, what's the goal of the populist group? You, you know, you alluded there to legacy. How, how do you see that playing out? Uh, you know, at our core, you know, I, I started it around the kind act that I mentioned in the beginning that I'm open to sharing if you want to, but I, um, you know, at our core, we believe everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed. And I built my community around that core belief and it's embedded in everything that we do. And, Great for me is that it lasts a lot longer than I do. And I send a lot of kids who grew up looking like me and going through the experiences that I experienced, you know, to school and very fortunate that I've been able to, to do that and, you know, help a lot of veteran entrepreneurs too. It's built, literally it's anchored around helping you know, underprivileged kids born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide and veteran entrepreneurs take better control of their story because, you know, that's who I was. That, uh, sending kids to college, how do you, or school, is that a charitable thing that you do off the back of the profit that you make on the, on the business? Or is it, is it more intrinsic to that than that? It's actually both. It, um, within my community, I have what's called the populist group project. And yeah, so in a sense, it's like an internal foundation. And within that, we use that to do all our giving work. But the way I look at giving is, you know, it has to have what I call the triangle of love. One, it has to have time and energy and money. And more often than not, I feel like well-intended, you know, entrepreneurs that want to build a purpose-driven company or so forth, more often than not, my observation has been that usually there's been one predominant factor around in that triangle of love. You know, the giving and the the economics of it, which is important. And obviously dreams aren't free, but the other two, I believe, deliver more fulfillment and help us help, you know, whoever you're trying to help more. So we didn't say what the populist group do. What drives your economic engine there? Yeah. Dom, you know how large organizations have a very hard time, challenging time managing their full-time employee population? and understanding all the nuances of imagine managing everything for their full-time employees. Yep. Well, they have an even harder time doing that for, for their non-permanent employees. And <laughs> do you know, so, do you know, I have a phrase with my clients, which is contractors are people too. 
Exactly. Because because they do exactly that. They, they, that happens all the time. They have this conversation about some sort of HR policy thing. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's like, what about the contractors? Oh, yeah, what about the contractors? Exactly right. And so basically my community, we help organizations better manage their non-permanent workforce. And uh, that's made up of several different types of non-permanent employees. And they all have different rules and and ways they need to be handled and they can get complex, confusing. So in short, we come in and help them do it better, easier, more economically in a more simple manner that is, that keeps them out of trouble. So, you know, it uh, removes a heck of a lot of frustration that they don't have time to deal with. And so what's your ideal size ICP client? What size are they and or how many contractors are you managing for them? You know, historically, like the size profile has been more medium to large size companies because they tend to have mm-hmm. a larger non-permanent workforce across all industries across the U.S. We do some, uh, some global work, usually through partnerships because that can get complex very quickly. But uh, I think most people are surprised how much money organizations spend on an annual basis, you know, through non-permanent you know, labor. It's significant. And it's only getting more significant as, you know, what we used to think was a war for talent pales in comparison to what we're going now through now. Yeah, I think the whole world's experiencing this supply and demand challenge with, you know, talent that we're all challenged with right now. If you were a mid-sized American organization listening to this, mm-hmm. do you do everything? Like, do you do tech, non-tech, you know, whatever their requirements are? Or, you, or do you have a sort of a sweet spot around particular types of employees that you place? We're painting with a bit of a broad brush, but it's situational. But for the most part, it's, you know, organizations that have, you know, more of your, you know, mid to high level professional type uh-huh. positions. And some of those can be like specialized IT, engineering, your core professional supporting functions across the different parts of the organizational's ecosystem. Uh, where we tend to not be the best of partners for organization is, you know, those the more skilled trades that tend to have higher turnover rates, that tend to have larger, uh, more unskilled labor type. Here in the U.S., we call that light industrial. Yeah, those yeah. type of uh, positions tend to be more situational for us than, than not. So it's usually more in that first category that I mentioned. Why did you start this business? Your entrepreneurial flair could have got you to do anything, but why this in particular? Do you mind if I answer that in two parts? Uh, Let me tell you the more important why first, and then I'll tell you this less important why. I want you to tell the boss story at some point. It's like, is this the time to bring it in, do you reckon? I think so. Don, when I was 17, my younger brother Ed and I were on a return trip home from a basketball game. And along the way, we stopped for dinner. And we just had a big win. We were all excited. And as the bus was stopping, I was, I got this pit in my stomach because I knew what was about to happen. You know, when we stopped, everybody unloaded off the bus, except for me and my brother, Ed. At that point in my family story, we didn't have the means to play sports and afford dinner. As I mentioned, struggle had been the only consistent theme in my family story. And we were very accustomed to staying on that bus and we're sitting towards the back of the bus and my mom had packed some of her legendary burritos for us, Dom, that I'd kill for. And we're about to dig into to our meal and on board steps this gentleman. And he starts walking, walking towards the back of the bus, one of the dads to the other players. And initially he razzed me a little bit because Ed had outscored me that night. Uh, and then he said something to me that I will always remember. Bobby, it would make me very happy if you would allow me to buy you boys dinner so that you can join the rest of the team. Nobody else has to know. All you have to do to thank me is do the same thing for another great kid just like you in the future. And to this day, Dom, I can't tell that story uh, without feeling that same wave of gratitude that I felt at that moment. And I remember stepping off the bus that night and I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I mean, I'm 17. I'm your typical knucklehead American (laughs) boy. 
all I knew is that I had this desire to join the military a year later, which I eventually did. But that evening when I stepped off the bus, although I had no idea what I was going to do, I knew why. Like I would somehow, some way, figure out a way to create something that would allow me to pay forward that kind act to other kids like me who were born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide. And I'll often tell people that that moment gave me a hope that was missing and I didn't know how much it was missing. Uh, but even bigger than that, it gave me the belief that someday I too could check what I call the ultimate box. And that is, will my story matter? Because I realized, hey, if I do that and if I make the kind of difference that that man just made with me, Maybe I can check that box. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. People have often asked me why that story had a, such a profound impact on me. And aside from my family story from struggle and a, a couple of real impactful moments that had, you know, impacted my dad and, you know, my, my grandmother, you know, there was something that I think is real relevant about this man that came on board the bus. He was a very successful businessman in the community. And at the time, the narrative that I told myself was that rich, successful white men like him don't see brown kids like me. And with one kind act, not only did he teach me that I was wrong, but he taught me that one of the single most important parts of leadership is seeing and encouraging potential. That was the very first time in my life that I felt seen and it changed everything for me. And that is what I refer to as the flap of the butterfly wings that eventually became the invisible force that drove me to start my now community populist group. At the point in time, I was like, I, I don't know what it's going to be. Heck, it could be Bobby's Burrito Shack in Hawaii, which still has potential. <laughs> uh, but Once you've got the kids adopted and you can get out of town. <laughs> and, you know, it became this. And uh, after I got out of the military, got out of college, you know, a wonderful organization took a chance on me. I learned the world of recruiting. I became pretty good at it. And then eventually after I was with them for a while, I decided to pursue this and God's given me more than I deserve. And it's been an interesting journey now, uh, 20 years in. What does the next 20 years look like, do you think? Is it a family enterprise? Do the kids end up, do your kids end up working in the populist group? Is it, is it legacy that way? Does it, do the staff buy it from you? Is it, a, do you, you know, I don't know. I think, um, you know, how that unfolds, I don't put a lot of thought into, with the exception of my kids. I, If you asked any of them right now, I could, if they happen to interrupt us and walk into our recording, you could ask any of the three, what's your dad going to do when you turn 18? And to the one, they will say, he's going to break my plate and he's going to burn my bed. So, <laughs> uh, so the answer is no, they will not. They're going to go climb their own mountain. And my responsibility is to prepare them for the path, not to prepare the path for them. And I'll give them all the encouragement, but they're not going to be a part of this story. I want them to go create their own and I'll encourage them and do my best to prepare them accordingly. And, you know, for me, Dom, I think to more specifically answer that question, I, uh, I follow a pretty simple evolving approach with what I'm building at Populous Group. And that is, you know, it's like, are we a better community today than we were six months ago? And what do we have to do in the next six months to be a better community then than we are today? So I'm pretty simple in how I measure the organization. The single most important metric that I measure is the trust in our organization. And I've always looked at it as the more trust and unity we build around the things that matter and helping great people become better people, well, the numbers are gonna follow. And you know, I built a climbing metaphor passionate about the mountains, everything there, like all our vernaculars around climbing. I think you may have read that in, uh, yeah. in the book, but I use that to create, you know, it's part of our identity. Uh, but I use that metaphor. It's like, you know, that's our version of putting one foot in front of the other. And we do that and follow that mantra of, you know, together is better. We'll, we'll do some good things together and lean into our purpose. You give new employees a carabiner? Yes, I do. Yeah. I give them all a carabiner on day one. And on it, it says choice. Uh, mine's sitting right over there. And we take it as a symbol to every one of our, you know, every one of our meetings, every one of our routines. You have to have it on you. 
uh, and it's symbolic in how we climb as one. We clip in together, and you know, and the backstory to that is we we get to choose what version of us shows up when we get on that road team. So we build that into the moment someone selected and joins our community. Well, how often do they read about the populist group and think? That sounds great. I'm going to join. But actually, when they get on the inside, maybe you screen them out and they don't get in. But do you sometimes have people who, once they're on the inside, the mission doesn't mean enough to them. And so they go find their path somewhere else. Oh, of course. You know, I think... Uh, it's not a cult. You can leave. No. <laughs> you know, and I, I think it's, you know, naive of any leader or any entrepreneur to believe that, you know, everyone that starts and becomes a part of your story is going to be there at the end of your story. I mean, I, you know, I actually write a chapter about that in, in the book about not everyone will summit, but the backstory to that is, Hey, you have to celebrate that part of their story when they're actually on the road team with you. The organizations that are most intentional about their culture and about how they want to build their community is, I think they do three things better than anyone. They select well, they welcome well, and they develop well. Now, the embedded question in there is, okay, well, what's the difference between selection and hiring? What's the difference between welcoming and onboarding? And what's the difference between development and training? Because they're on opposite sides of the spectrum. My observation has been that most entrepreneurs and leaders are very well-intended, but end up doing more hiring, onboarding, and training than they do selecting, welcoming, and development. And here's what I mean in English. In that, for me, selection is as simple as our very symbolic uh, gesture that we do anytime when we interact with a potential climber, which is what I call our employees. In that first interaction, we symbolically take their resume. What do you call it in uh, in England, Dom? Your CV, right? Yeah. I couldn't spell curriculum vitae in a spelling bee. I'd be I'd I'd be the first one out. We symbolically take that and we flip it over because we're more interested on the back of the resume than we are on the front. Because I'm more interested in what you believe, and what drives those beliefs, who you are, who you're becoming. So we invest at least the first two very in-depth interactions with a potential climber on the back of the resume before we even begin to talk about the front of the resume. That's really interesting. I just One of the things that we randomly stumbled across at Rackspace, mm -hmm. which I'm not sure I've said on any of the podcasts, if I, and I've done it ever since, is when I meet a candidate for the first time, I give them a blank sheet of paper and a packet of colored pencils. And I say, you've got 10 minutes to draw what motivates you and inspires you. That's great. And then you just come in and then you just talk about the picture, which is, it's exactly that. It's like, what is it? Because the CVs, like, you know, but I want to know what their drive is, what their motivation is, what they care about, what their story is, where they're from. And what we found was you could actually put 10 pictures on a table never meet the candidate, never see the V, CV, and hire the best people by picking the picture. Now, it sounds completely bizarre. And when I tell this to people, they look at me like a mental and only one or two people have ever picked it up and taken the program, taken that away and used it in their business because they just, yeah. it doesn't, doesn't work for them. Mm -hmm. But it was just incredibly powerful as a tool. And it also meant that a bit like you do, I guess, when you're talking to people about the thing that's not on their CV, that's an interview they're not expecting. They're not expecting it. Matter of fact, most of the time they look at you like you're mental. Like, <laughs> wait a second, nobody prepared me for this. They prepared me for all the, the questions that don't matter that you, re you can rehearse. Like, no, I want to know who you are, how you became who you are, and who you're becoming. And then we can have a meaningful conversation about how that aligns to what matters in our community and whether or not on day one, and I, we're very intentional about messaging this to everyone, this kind of segues into the welcome. It's like you were selected for one reason, to make us better, to make our story better. So in the welcome, before we have anyone do any type of job shadowing around the role that they're going to play, they invest an entire week engulfed 
in our culture, in the stories, in the purpose, and talking to climbers across the country, getting to know them, building an alliance of, of getting to know people. Because starting a new job is one of the most stressful things that anyone can do. You know, you walk into it asking yourself that question, like, did I make the right choice? Am I going to like it here? Are they going to like me? All that kind of stuff. Well, it's stressful. It's kind of like, you know, going to kindergarten, going to, you know, starting school. Let's instead of creating more anxiety, let's lower the anxiety, giving them the context they need. And we found that by doing that, that's what a welcome is versus onboarding. You put them right into the job. You have them sign all kinds of stuff that's intimidating that they don't understand. Right? And I actually created the welcome around annoying uh, onboarding experiences that I had in my professional career. And you know, people leave after their first week wondering, oh my gosh, did I make the right choice? Well, let's give them visibility to who we are in our stories. And yeah, we do that for, for everyone that joins our community. So back to your question, they know very quickly whether or not uh, they're going to align with our purpose. And then secondly, our culture code, which is how do we behave? We make that very clear to them. And we'll often scare people off with sincerity. Like, hey, look, these are the three pillars of our culture. We give more than we take. We speak from the heart and we go off the beaten path. And this is how these come to life for us. And we have story after story after story that brings those, you know, those values and those pillars of our culture code to life. And we make it very clear to them. If you can't stay within these well-defined boundaries, you're going to be miserable here. So when you said we've selected you for a purpose to make our story better, one of the things I see people do a lot, uh, I know you, you don't have the same thing in the U S cause you have a draft, but my analogy in the UK is like, if you're a soccer team, you know, and you've just won the championship, you don't go out and hire players that are worse than the team who just won the championship. But I see, I see companies do that all the time. I've got this sales guy. He's amazing. He's on loads of money. So I'm going to hire another sales guy on less money. Who's not as good. And they, they're sort of, they are deliberately lowering their average of their talent. And, and it's, I just wondered whether that thing that you said there, whether you were explicitly saying these people that we hire are a, are better than the people that we've got. And we're explicitly trying to push up our, our talent base over time. Here's been my observation, right? So I agree with you. So the, so the CV and the resume, like first and foremost, that's permission to play. Like you have to have the competency to come in and do what we need you to do. However, I profoundly believe that why we do it and how we do it is so much more important than what we do. So when we select someone, our intention is that you must raise the team average with what you bring, right? So if the team average was at a five, when you came in by selecting you, we believe that at a minimum it went to 5.1. And because of that, we expect you to come in and share your gifts, whatever your genius is, whatever gives you energy, whatever gives you joy. We're going to expect you to contribute starting day two. We'll give you one day to be new. On day two, <laughs> we expect you to raise your hand and speak up because now we know some of your story and you can bring some of that story, which by the way, we're a sucker for the underdog. And yeah, that's always been my battle, battle cry. All hell, the underdog is like, you're coming in because you've shown us that you can raise our team average. But you can't figure that out without making someone draw that picture, like you said. Which, by the way, I, I, I'm, uh, I believe in good theft. I am going to take that <laughs> for a team exercise. I think it's a wonderful. Well, I love well, that. Well, you know what? It, it, had been, it had been a while since we'd done any recruitment and I was hiring somebody here at, at, uh, in our little firm. And this lady came in and I said, I'd like you to draw a picture. She didn't seem very happy about it. Anyway... I said, here's the color pencils. I'll give you 10 minutes. I come back in. She's drawn three pictures of herself only using red. Hmm. And, and I said, huh, that's interesting. Who are these people? And she said, because again, you have to, even if you think you know the answer, you have to ask, always ask the, the question from the point of view of, I might be wrong. Because I've, I've said to people, 
they've drawn a landscape and there's a big yellow orb which seems like it might be the sun and you say can you tell me what this is and they go oh it's just i just i just drew a yellow circle and filled it in like and it, they weren't thinking it was the sun at all so i said to her who are these three people and she said oh that's me and i said oh yeah and what do you do and she said oh well this is me buying a handbag and this is me going on holiday and this is me going out for dinner i'm like right okay you're not going to fit in here <laughs> you had an opportunity to talk about anybody else in the world you take three opportunities to talk about you no this isn't going to work and you didn't use any other colors this is not a good picture thank you bye-bye i think that whole thing about raising the bar is good but then you mentioned genius right mm -hmm. so i know you've been using the table group pansy lentioni's working genius tool mm -hmm. how have you what have you been doing with that We've actually, um, you know, we, I've been student of Pat, Pat's work for ages. You know, I've, Pat's work continues to get even better. He has just such a unique lens on leadership that uh, I've been very fortunate to, to apply into my own community. But, you know, the work in Genius, like I'm going out on a limb here. I believe that this is actually going to be some of his more most impactful work. And that's saying a lot based on what he's done in the past. But I, I think it's going to be one of his most impactful models. But, you know, great for me is that, you know, with his latest model around the week in, work in genius, which in a sense helps people better understand, hey, what are the gifts that I bring to, to my work that give me energy, that give me joy? And, you know, also what are some of my frustrations? And he has a whole you know, model developed around it that I think you're familiar with, Dom, but we're basically using it as another tool to help our climbers better understand how they're wired and how they can best contribute. Because, you know, think about this for a moment. I think any organization that's trying to build something meaningful, they want ambitious, gritty people that are great at building trust and are great at solving problems in their organization. And I don't think there's a single entrepreneur or business leader that they would disagree with me on that. And if they did, their business probably isn't going to be around very long. Right? Well, ambitious people need interesting projects. And we also want these interesting projects to get solved in the most efficient way, in the most impactful way that create opportunity for everybody involved, right? Well, the work in Genius helps us better position people around these interesting projects where it drives engagement and it helps them do things that they enjoy doing because there's probably things that they don't like doing that someone else loves doing. So it's just been a really wonderful way for us to look at the whole organization around their gifts and also what drives them crazy and edit accordingly. I was just using it today with a new client. And, uh, so we went through the model in the morning and the person on the executive team who was the most sort of, you know, strategic thinker, if you like, WI is the CFO, right? And so people are like, huh, that's weird. We didn't expect the CFO to be the strategic thinker in the room. And he went on to tell a story where he, in the last company he'd been in, his being hired and how he shows up this strategic thinking was a complete mismatch with what they expected. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it led him to leave the organization because they're like, you're the CFO. Could you just go over there and count the beans? We're not interested in your strategic thinking. That's not right. what we hired you for. And he said it was just a complete mismatch. As we went through the afternoon, you know, a couple of amazing insights from him at sort of 30,000 feet level. And people are like, oh, that's the thing from this morning. I can see how that plays out, you know, and it's just, it's just so useful to have, you know, that lens or even I think the guilt and judgment stuff, it's tough to bring that into a team to talk about guilt and judgment, but certainly in the UK, but, um, Same here. you know, it's just, you're, you're judging somebody and you shouldn't be, it's just, we're not the same. We've got different strengths. Yeah, we were just made different. We're wired different. And yeah. it's, I mean, it's helped us create more safety around that, to your point. But then it's also, you know, it's just even more validation to you know, anyone that's trying to build something meaningful. You know, as a leader, we have two very important decisions that we need to make, right? So, you know, and I, I, would, I would go as far as saying they're arguably the two most important. 
right? aside from the purpose and, and, and driving the culture, but it's like, you know, who we select and who we allow to remain on our team are the two of the biggest decisions that we make, right? Now, once you have that team established, right, it's no more complicated than having the right people doing the right things, doing the right things right. The work in genius is helping us do that even better. Uh, and I'm so excited about it. Like I said, I think it's going to be Pat's, some of his most impactful work. And that's saying a lot. I've worked with Pat personally and gotten to know him uh, over the years. And, you know, I told him this two weeks ago. I was in California. We spent a day again. And I said, Pat, like, this is going to be your base work yet. I think you put put the game on checkmate here. So Very good. Very good. Bobby, What what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? <laughs> I may surprise you with my answer. Uh, and my answer is this, nothing, right? So in other <laughs> words, you know, someone asked me the other day, it's like, hey, Bobby, if you could go back to your, let's just say your 21-year-old or 24-year-old self and, you know, buy him a beer, like, you know, what would you tell him? And I said, well, here's what I would do. I'd sit right next to that knucklehead and I'd buy him the cheapest beer in the bar and I'd buy myself the best beer in the bar and I would say, hey, salut enjoy the ride. You're going to fall on your ass a lot. And, and I say that sincerity, sincerely, because, you know, like I, I think, I believe that struggle is the most authentic form of progress we will ever have. And without that, we don't learn the meaningful things that matter. You know, sure. There are things that, you know, I wish I would have learned earlier and all that kind of stuff, but there's no sense in investing a whole lot of time in that. I think who we become is based on, you know, what we went through. And so that's just more of my philosophy when I look at stuff like that, Tom. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. No regrets. It, well, it's also nice you're happy in your own skin because what you're saying to your 20-year-old, 24-year-old self is, well, do you know what? It's a bit like the thing you said with your kids, right? So I was, I was interested in that when you said, like, you know, burning your bed, baking the plates, you're gone. Right, you know, you've ended up doing okay, right? more than okay right you've done really well bless yeah but you part of your journey has been the struggle right and uh, do your kids have any struggle well they're growing up differently <laughs> than i did so let's just say that i have to be very intentional on how i manufacture it but you know i'm doing the same thing with them that my dad did with me my dad was a magnificent storyteller dom i don't know if you remember this character uh do you remember the the Mexican, I mean, the, uh, the actor, John Wayne, I said, my dad was the Mexican John Wayne. He was a storyteller and gifted. And I remember growing up and he would tell me stories and I'd be like, Oh dad, another story. I tell my kids so many stories, Dom. I try to do it in a way that doesn't feel like I'm being a pastor to him. Uh -huh. No doubt. I probably cross that line at times. But, <laughs> uh, and they roll their yeah. eyes. Yeah, you know, I'll tell them, sir. But I, I, I think it's sticking with them in a way that, you know, now they'll they crave them at times. They'll ask me, "Hey, Dad, we tell me this story about so and so," or "Dad, we tell me that story," or they'll ask me a question. I tend to, you know, communicate with them if they ask me something. I'll be like, "Like, hey, can Dad tell you a story?" And at first they'll twitch or they're like, "Ah," but then they'll eventually come back and I'll tell them the story. So I, I think you know the the power story helps me there, but. They're going to definitely grow up different than I did, but I want to figure out a way to yeah, encourage them to go climb their own mountain. Well, it's also interesting listening to the book that it wasn't on day one that you, that you had shared your, that bus story with your team. And it took a while for you to go and share that with them, but then it gave the whole organization clarity and focus on what it was all about and why, you know, and, and the essence of the book really, I, I took away was, you know, in everybody's life, there is that pivotal story. So find it and then tell that story so that people can clearly see what you're about and where you're going. Yeah, not only was it not on day one, it was an even year one. I think it was year 10. And I'll often tell people very openly, I'm very open about the fact that my single biggest mistakes was not sharing that bus story with the organization, you know, they could feel my intensity. They could feel that I genuinely cared about them. They could feel that I was trying to build something meaningful, but absent of me telling them that story, they were guessing. And when we don't share the narrative with people, they're going to make up their own narrative. So, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, that was a huge mistake of mine. 
But when I finally, and I unpack how it went down and everything in the book, but when I finally did, I often tell people when I finally told the best bus story, that was when I started the transformation of going from a company to a community. And that's the difference. And what's interesting is if we looked at the number, you know, at that point in time, I'm just going to just, again, for number's sakes, I don't really care about the number. In year 10, we had yet to break. We actually, we had just broken a hundred million in annual revenue, right? That was in year 10. So it took us from zero to 10 to get to 100 million, right? And then I told that story from year 11 to now year 20, we've grown 500 million. So I'll leave it up for the listener to decide. You tell me, does it matter? Fantastic. And other than picking up a copy of The Gift of Struggle from all good booksellers and Amazon, what else should people pick up? What the stuff by Patrick Lencioni, what else has had an impact on you along the way? Yeah. You know, I mean, I have what I call my Bible row up there on the shelf and you know, those are my, you know, I believe repetitions of mother skill, right? So I'll pick these up and I'll, I'll review them and stuff. When someone asks me for a book recommendation, I usually ask them two questions to immediately follow. I said, number one, like what gives you energy? Like what gift do you possess that just gives you a lot of energy and joy? And maybe it's storytelling, maybe it's, you know, what, whatever it may be. And then the second question I ask is, do you know who the best at that is? If you don't find out, right? So once you answer those two questions, then go get something, but learn from the best, figure out who the best is at that and get the book. But for me, I recently, you know, for the answer to that, like I'm very passionate about uh, storytelling and acquiring wisdom. And I actually just read a book titled, um, you know, The Wisdom Pyramid. And it talks about the sources of wisdom and I'm going to send you a copy, Dom, if you're interested, but it really, it really unpacks the sources of wisdom that, that we are intentionally using. And it's, oh, it, you know, it has a spiritual essence to it, but it's not overbearing, but it really helps you self-assess, hey, what are my sources of wisdom? How am I tapping into those sources of wisdom and using that to become a better version of me? And there hasn't been a single person that, uh, I've, and it's, it, you know, it's one of those simple, palatable, fast reads that will make your hamster wheel spin and it'll, uh, help you self-assess what your sources of wisdom are. It's been, uh, it's been a beautiful source of learning for me and I highly recommend it. And on storytelling, what's on your Bible row then? What do you reread around storytelling? I've been a student of, you know, Donald Miller. Donald Miller's great at that. I've been a student of Carmine Gallo. Carmine actually used the bus story in one of his books, uh, The Storyteller's Secret. So those have been two uh, wonderful teachers of storytelling that that I've learned from. I know we just talked about Pat, but you know, Pat has a way of bringing to life the essence of what he's trying to teach through a good story, through a good fable. So Pat's been a great, great uh, teacher that I've learned from there. And the Donald Miller story brand yeah building a story brand yeah donald's donald's great he has a really good way of uh helping simplify that journey for people it's nice isn't it it's um you know that whole be a guide there's a servant element to that isn't there which is which is nice yeah yeah he does he does a great job nancy duarte also who i think donald credits a lot with you know her work and uh but she's also a great great guide fantastic and the story seller secret by Carmine Gallo. Carmine Gallo. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Great, great teachers of storytelling. You know, if that's a gift that you possess that you're interested in strengthening, consider looking into their work. It's just great to try and bring some emotion to whatever the content is. Mm-hmm. So often the bit that's missing. No, there's no doubt. I mean, I, you know, like the, the quickest way to someone's mind is through their heart. You know, it's like if you want to shorten the cycle uh, of any, you know, sale or any entrepreneurial journey, go through the heart. You know, I'm living proof of that. I couldn't do it for the first 10 years. And granted, it wasn't just that story, but that story had a big impact on it. You know, look what it was like in the following 10 years. 
How many people are in the community now? So full-time climbers I have um, in the 300 range. Yep. But then our contractor population that we help manage for our customers nationwide and globally are fluctuating on the week because it's a flexible workforce between uh, like between 6,500 to 8,000, depending on the week. So I have a lot of wonderful people that are a lot more organized than I am doing that for me. That's not my gift. Well, I'm the working genius. What are you? Are you ID, WI? Where would you? I am galvanizing and I am discernment. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm WG. Yeah. When it comes to invention, that is one of my frustrations. I'll be making one of those fake footballs. If we've got to figure something out and invent something, like there's not enough riddling to keep me focused in, in that meeting. But you know whether it's, you know a good idea when you hear it and you can go and tell a story around it all day long. I can distill it intuitively and that gives me a lot of joy. And so I'm not the one to create it, but I'm actually the one that I can, like, I can see it real clearly as to whether it's going to work or not. That's brilliant. Bobby, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for giving us the time and coming on today. Yeah, healthy underdogs, Dom. I've enjoyed it. You know, God bless your work. You're doing a lot of great work out there, and it's been uh, wonderful expanding my challenge network, getting an opportunity to meet with you. Fantastic. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.